Well, welcome everybody to this episode of Struggling Mystic uh, and this particular sort of part of Struggling Mystic is called Pontificators Anonymous. This is where we join with uh, two other ministers, uh, Reverend Duncan McBean and Reverend Stuart Bosch. You guys want to say hello? Hello? <laughs> Thanks for that. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but means a quick check-in. How's ministry going for you guys? Just, just remind people where you are, Duncan. You're 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 in in um, the UK. I'm in Southeast London. I'm in a circuit of eight churches. I'm the superintendent minister. Stu, and I'm in the central. Uh, it's called the Wide Bay, part of Queensland, about five hours north of Brisbane, and uh, ministering at a church in Bundaberg, which is on the on the coast. Great, brilliant. And how's ministry? going for you through the season it's going pretty well um at the moment in terms of um kind of church life and work and witness we've just had our online uh, assembly meeting and so on so things moving moving through to a, a sort of less um frenetic pace in the year now that you know easter and pentecost and all of that stuff is um has taken place and kind of just get a moment to settle down. Yeah, yeah. Duncan, for you? Yeah, I think much the same. You know, it tends to be a, a theoretical quiet season in the life of the church where it's Sunday by Sunday stuff and summer comes along so people are on holiday and so on. So it tends to be quieter. But are any, natural, are, are any of you planning leave? Oh, yes. I've got two weeks coming up in Scotland. Oh, brilliant, Duncan. Fantastic. Since we're not allowed to travel to the continent or anywhere else, so Scotland it is. And Stuart, for you? No, no, no. We're not, uh, we don't have the lengthy summer holidays that you guys have got because we're in, in, in winter. So we've just finished uh, our two-week school holidays. I just took a week off with the family, but um, we just stayed at home. Obviously, no, no traveling around states or locking up borders, so Okay, brilliant, brilliant. Well, we're here today to, uh, you know, the whole sort of approach of Pontificators Anonymous, the three of us, is to choose a particular word, uh, very often sort of church or faith or spirit related, and then just to have a relatively unprepared uh, conversation (laughs) on our sort of thoughts and feelings on that word. And in discussions in preparation for this, it was decided that this week we'd look at, I think, what is an increasingly sort of contested word, and that word is evangelism. So Stuart, Duncan, and myself are sort of opening ourselves up to that conversation. And uh, I prepared a list, a list of questions or ways we could reflect upon this particular word, gave an incredibly large amount of advance notice to Duncan and Stuart, so we're expecting quality input. <laughs> Advance notice being about an hour, so they've had a little bit of time to to reflect on these questions. So I think might actually be helpful because it allow us to have a brutally honest conversation uh, about yeah. this particular word. So um, <clears throat> to maybe get us started on the word evangelism, if you think, well, can I can I can I start and ask you why you used the word contested? That was interesting. Yeah, uh, because I think uh, in terms of Christian thoughts across the spectrum of uh, sort of Christian belief and practice, I think the notion of what counts as 
as effective and healthy evangelism is, um, yeah, I think it is a contested terrain. I think a lot of people bring different ideas to to the party, and um, <clears throat> and yeah, and I think, I mean, I think as we all see through this conversation, we've seen many iterations of what evangelism we've been told evangelism should be and should look like. And I do think that some of those things are buried in our sort of theological understanding of what's actually going on when we speak of the good mm. news. So I think it sort of burrows into some some schisms that are alive and active within the Christian church itself. So that's why I would okay. have used the word contested. But, you know, maybe through our conversation, we'll we'll bring some of that stuff yeah. to the fore. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> in terms of, of yourself, maybe Duncan, if you think of the word evangelism, what is your first feeling uh, about that? First feeling is anxiety. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's the immediate feeling that that rises up in me, whether I'm expected to be delivering evangelism or receiving evangelism from somebody who's convinced that somehow I'm not Christian enough or not the kind of Christian they'd like me to be. Yeah, yeah. I I I think I'd share that. Yeah, great. Stuart, for yourself. Uh, my feeling when when I hear the word evangelism, it's just like a deep sigh, you know, it's just like, oh, oh you know, because uh, on similar lines, you know, in, in similar, um, for similar reasons to what Duncan, what Duncan said, but, but you kind of, I sigh because I think nobody's getting it right, actually. Um, and I, when somebody says it, maybe along the lines of what you were saying, Andrew, with the word being contested, I, I think to myself, okay, well, what version am I going to be faced with now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Sure. I mean, in our time, <clears throat> thinking back to when we were young, sort of coming to the church as, you know, pastors or just um, lay members of churches, we've seen all sorts of ways in which evangelism was practiced. Uh, you know, for, I've personally, I've, I've been to the sort of large evangelical events. I remember in Durban going to see Billy, I wasn't Billy Graham then, it was Franklin Graham, did a massive crusade and, uh, you know, generated sort of a lot of interest, would try to through the churches to get people to the stadium. And of course, the uh, the sort of well-worn trope of calling people to the front for a conversion prayer and all that. Um, and then, you know, we've we've also been through the Alpha thing. Alpha was a sort of evangelical tool that was to reach out into churches. Uh, and then, of course, in our time, uh, with the Willow Creek model of, uh, of seeker-sensitive church services, that was another sort of approach. Uh, actually, when I think about this, it feels like I've lived a couple of lifetimes, you know, <laughs> because cause each of them came with so much energy and it was so sort of... Um, all-encompassing, and uh, this was the sort of silver bullet that was going to, uh, you know, do the trick for Christianity, which has been really on a way, I think, since we started in the church. Uh, I mean, have there been other iterations that you talk about? You say, ah, oh, what about that? You know, you know that he has, he has something else we did. Maybe I've forgotten. Yeah, no, um, there was the whole emphasis on uh, EE3, Evangelism Explosion. Oh, yeah. Remember? Yeah, the guys would yeah. uh, ask you the question, if if you had to die tonight, would you know where you're going? That was how oh, EE3, yeah. that was their yeah. first point of con- connect. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when um, when the when the Bill Harbour's Willow Creek seeker-sensitive model didn't really take off too well in its... Um, in its partner churches or whatever 
association churches all over the world, they introduced a new program called Just Walk Across the Room. Oh, that's right. I, I did that course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did I. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And Duncan, for yourself, can you, would you sort of nuance that in any way? Well, yeah, the, the thing that went hand in glove with EE3, which was actually what brought me to faith, surprisingly enough, not receiving it, but being asked to go out and deliver it made me really sit and think about what where I stood in terms of my personal faith. Um, the thing that went hand in glove with that was the home cell movement. So the oh, uh, yes. local church movement where you built up a cell to a particular size, you know, a dozen or whatever, then it would split and it would seek each of those two churches, uh, home cells rather, of about six each would then try and build themselves back up to about 12 and then they'd split again and so it went on. Yeah, that's right. So that went hand in glove with it, which actually echoes <clears throat> early, early Methodism and the class meetings. Mm. Mm. It, it works on the same principle. Did you, I guess part of my anxiety when I think about this is how, you know, these things have or haven't worked to varying, to varying degrees, you know. I mean, if, if you reflect on each of those models, you know, there's probably something good about it, but probably a fair, something that's sort of maybe even toxic or, or, or not so good about it. I mean, if we just quickly sort of march through them, you look at those big tent revival type services, you know, big altar calls. I mean, w would you have your personal misgivings about that? And and what would they be? Oh, Tony Campolo once made a joke about it where he said you 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 came as you are. And, <clears throat> sorry, you came as you are and you left as you were. You know, <laughs> because the the follow up wasn't so great. There yeah. was no kind of plugging in uh, to helping anybody move beyond just this one point of commitment. All the focus was on, we'll get you to say the prayer. Yeah, yeah. So and uh, and of course, there's, uh, you know, as you speak about that, I think of the. <laughs> I think we've all been sort of guilty of this. Of those sort of camps we attended, where you'd have the the service on the Saturday nights. <clears throat> and uh, would, yeah. would offer people to sort of give their lives to Christ. And there was always a lot of sort of emotional energy that was there because that's the nature of those camps. So yeah. the sense in which it operates at that level, but like you're saying, Stuart, the, the rootedness isn't necessarily there. The, 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 the follow-up would, would be lacking. To be fair to those big revival meetings, the, um, Billy Graham and Franklin Graham, later on when they were doing this, tried very hard to get the local churches engaged mm. So that when it people is. went up, when they went back from having made a commitment, there would be a local church that could hold them and disciple them. Mm. Um, you know, <clears throat> so to be fair mm. to them, they did try plugging that gap. But the the fall away from that kind of big mission thing was enormous at mm. the end of it. Something like eighty five percent of people who made an initial commitment drifted away. Mm. Mm. So. They looked successful, but they didn't Truly actually make, make, inroads, yeah. make a massive difference. They Do made you? a difference. It's like Alpha. You know, if you've got an Alpha course and you've got 100 people, if you've got 10 people as a result of that Alpha course, from my experience, who, who then go on to say, yeah, I'll be, you know, they get into a local church and they, they're trying to grow and be discipled and everything else. If you get 10 out of 100, you're doing really well. Mm, mm, mm. Do do you think those big tent revival type um, gatherings were sort of compromised by a sort of cult of personality, and 
and by a, a sort of like almost like a sort of cult of empire as well that this was you know massive coming from a place a, a sort of powerful uh, personality often well in the graham's case certainly american so it came with sort of a very blurred line between what was actually gospel and what was actually sort of uh, a sort of an, an american uh, life philosophy of of success uh, and happiness and well-being yeah i think culture personality was enormous around those mm. things mm. and it is around the program driven stuff as well you know you you either buy into the personality of Bill Hybels and Nicky Gumbel, or you don't. Yeah. And um, th that's part of the issue where you've got st uh, styles of evangelism that come across the pond mm. from America to Britain or Australia or wherever. Mm. There's a mm. cultural gap, mm. and there's often not a good fit when yeah. you try and actually use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think that you can't... Um you can't you can't divorce it from the context of the time i mean those mm. those big those big revival meetings happened in the in the sort of late 60s early 70s that was the real uh the real heyday of them and if you think i mean it's uh, it's actually hard to imagine now but in the context of the time that was um there there, there wasn't internet youtube even widespread video usage stuff mm. like that so so getting the message out in some way like that, I suppose you would need a, you would have needed big personalities, mm -hmm. you know. There's, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so sort of a, a, a sign of its time already. Yeah, I could never really imagine it happening now. And Frank Franklin Graham did come out to Australia, and you know, uh, in terms of a trickle of people in comparison, I think. Mm. what Billy was yeah well I mean you know as I was reflecting on, on questions to ask one of the things that stuck with me is that all of us are Christian um, I just want to check in on that that's right am I correct <laughs> <laughs> we, we came to faith in a particular way uh, how does the way we ourselves were brought to faith inform uh, our sort of approach to evangelism that question came to me quite late actually uh, I thought and I thought it's actually quite nice because it sort of personalized it uh, I mean, how? I mean, what was our story? How did we sort of land up where where we are in Christ? Well, if you don't mind me starting, yeah. Um, I like I said, I came to faith through EE three. Mm. So for me, that transition, that that the tool becomes irrelevant. Whatever led me to that point, it was very much a personal journey. Um, so it was very much that that personal relationship thing with with God through Christ that brought me to faith well what i find interesting about that duncan is that you were saying you actually weren't the recipient <laughs> of somebody else's sort of right. uh of of you were actually doing the ee program is that right have i heard you correctly yeah, i was i was on the point of um i think we couple of, you had a it was i remember it being thursday nights and um you had a couple of sessions training sessions before you went out with folk and you had to memorize various scriptures and various questions. Like um, Stuart said, you had to memorize these two questions about if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? And um, if, you, if, you, if God said to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Mm. The, the, I, I seem to remember those are the two questions. Mm. And I remember mm. the minister 
training us and and saying this is what you pray if you want to lead somebody to faith mm. and i remember just sitting there quietly by myself sort of zoned out for a minute from what was going on around me and i said to god okay you know i i don't want to be a hypocrite in doing this mm. so if you're real let me know and i prayed the prayer quietly to myself and um, then carried on with the evening and i woke up the next morning a very different person Brilliant, better, brilliant. Better, I will just say better. <laughs> not, not different words, different better. <laughs> you had us wondering. Uh, St- <laughs> Stuart, what about you? Uh, I mean, uh, as you know, I grew up in a home with the father who was a Methodist minister. In the, um, so born in the 70s and early 80s, uh, growing up, I came to faith because of that background, I think, and um, was taught early on about the importance of a relationship with God and so on. Came to a point of sort of, uh, as, a, as a late teenager, deciding, is this something that I really want? Is it, you know, journeying through looking at Christianity, looking at the alternatives and saying, well, well, is this for me? And came to the point of saying, Again, again, kind of a journey, a little bit with with my dad on the issue, and uh, and ended up saying, yeah, this is this is where I, um, where I want to be, what you know, what I want to do with my life. Brilliant, yeah. I think my story would be, I mean, our in some ways, Stuart, our stories track very similarly, at least in in the early years, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of being raised in a home of faith, a household of faith. I think it's C.S. Lewis who uses the analogy of. Uh, being on a train journey and falling asleep and then crossing uh, a sort of country line, mm. a national border, and then you sort of wake up in a different place to to where you fell asleep, but you're not quite sure exactly where you sort of crossed over. Um, and uh, I know my calling into ministry is a very particular moment in time, but my conversion to Christ would have been a far more natural graded process for me. So, mm. um, so I, I suppose, Stuart, for you and I, that sort of speaks to the power of um, formative faith language within the home, you know, the importance of sort of family prayer, you know, worldview of seeing things, of, of Christ being a, a presence, the, the spirit of God being a presence in the home and in the practice of living life. That sort of just becomes a mm. natural, uh, the passing of a baton, so to yeah. speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you'd agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the analogy of like what you said, C.S. Lewis is very true. Um, yeah, um, I agree one hundred percent, Andrew. Mm. I think it's a it was sort of a natural progression for me mm. as well. Yeah, Duncan, yours is radically different. You know, like so. So you had that that EE thing going on. Um, yeah, I, I was, mean, I was just thinking about it, and I think if somebody had used the E three questions on me, I would probably have rejected it. You know, it's odd that the thing that before it became personal for me would probably have turned me off. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, because evangelism in, in so many senses is fairly intrusive because yeah. it, it's, it's, it, it, it requires, I think, a, a personal relationship often. Um, but, yeah, so, but I grew up in a, a home of faith. I was a choir boy until I was 11 or whatever. Okay. Um, stayed in the church until I was about 15 and then decided, nah, not, not interested. Um, mm-hmm. Went to university 
argued against church and God and everything else, not in the sense of disbelieving, but just saying it had no real place in life. And mm, um, mm. God sort of had the last laugh on that one. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think to brilliantly move into the next portion of, of our examination of evangelism, a lot of what passes for discussion on evangelism deals with program-based thinking, get the right program in place or adopt the correct model and things will begin to happen. Uh, but I wonder if there aren't sort of deeper theological issues that our church needs to address regarding both the idea of evangelism and even the good news of Christ. Uh, would you agree with that? Do you, uh, do you think it is a, a model and a process-based issue, or do you think that the idea of evangelism is bringing a lot of other uh, sort of contested issues into play as well in mm. terms of what actually passes for good news? I mean, Duncan, you spoke about... No, EE3. I never heard rumor of that, by the way. I never had firsthand experience of EE3. But, you know, where are you going to go where you die? The notion of sort of dying in unbelief and going to literal hell would be, I think, something that, that some Christians would find actually not only would, wouldn't, they wouldn't agree with it, they'd find it quite offensive, actually. Um, I mean, would, would you agree with that? And, and how would you sort of inform that, that discussion? Um, yeah, I would agree with what you've said. If I could remember half of it, that'd be grand. Um, <laughs> I think that the deeper theological issues have been masked by a lot of the baggage that evangelism carries with it. And and I think the baggage that evangelism carries are the program-driven mm. things because we tend to, to hook our... our uh, hitch our wagon to a particular program and say whether it's E3 or Billy Graham or Alpha or whatever it might be, this is how evangelism is going to be done. Mm -hmm. And I think that we do neglect to to look at how successful evangelism has been done over time. And the the key thing for successful evangelism has always been friendship. It's yeah. always been based in relationship first, yeah. and then the good news of the the good news of Christ going along in that relationship, yeah. being yeah. being carried through that relationship, mm. even if it's not verbalized. Mm. I think it was St. Francis who said, um, "What what did St. Francis say? Something along the lines of always do uh, spread the gospel and sometimes use words." Sometimes use words. Thank you. Or if necessary, yeah. use words or something. Yeah. yeah. Other, other Francis or Mark Twain, I think. Duncan, on, on that a, note, isn't there a sorry, Stuart, I'll, I'll let you in in a second here. I just want to quiz Duncan on one issue there. I mean, the, the, the notion of friendship, I completely agree with that, that they're this sort of much more low-key one-on-one. But isn't there a danger of entering friendships with the sort of an agenda of conversion? Uh, that would maybe make the the endeavor of that friendship itself sort of, you know, like it's then yeah, it's sort of a bit of a bit yeah. of a bait and switch, you know, that you befriend people yeah. in order to win them for Christ. Is that not a? Is there not something inauthentic and dishonest about that? I, th I think if that's how you do it, then yes. If mm. your goal is to convert somebody then yes, I think it's inauthentic. Mm, mm. If your goal is to share the good news of Christ as you have found it and as you have found it in your life, mm, mm. then no, I don't think it's inauthentic. I think mm. then it's properly authentic. I think you're right. 
doing the bait and switch thing is a problem. And and this is part of the problem with the baggage of evangelism mm. is there's this need to say, I've got X number of notches on my, my yeah. little handheld cross. You know, I've converted X number of people. Mm. And I don't think that is the the main goal of evangelism. Mm. It's not conversion. It's bringing people into a real relationship with God through Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That's the goal of evangelism. But but not this business of saying, well, they've said the sinner's prayer, so I'll move on to the next one. Yeah. So I think you keep it authentic by friendship being the goal. Yeah. And if they happen to see something in your life that says to them there's more, then that's grand. You can go there. But you don't set out to convert somebody. And, and for me, an example in our multi-faith, multicultural societies would be that if you come, if you meet a Muslim person and you become friends, your goal should not be to convert that person to Christianity. First, if you want to discuss religion, you explore what God means to you and what God means to them. But your goal should be friendship before mm -hmm. conversion. And I think through that you can have an authentic expression of who God is to you and, and how God impacts on your life. Duncan, thank you. Great. Stuart, you wanted to you wanted to come in there. Yeah, when Duncan mentioned French of Evangelism, I was going to say something uh, along the lines of what you what you said there, and I agree with Duncan's response. Um, some of the goals of those programs you mentioned in the beginning were exactly that. You know, you become friends in order to convert, um, as opposed to you become friends and whatever happens. Uh, I, think the, I think the deeper theological issues of evangelism uh, are actually the fact that we have to define what evangelism is. Duncan, Duncan mentioned about um, uh, a journey closer to Christ, but I mean, I, I think evangelism has to be seen as something that you do uh, or any, let's put it this way, evangelism is, is anything that you do to help another person move closer to God, um, closer to, or closer even to a relationship with God. And um, it could be classified as evangelism. It doesn't have to be conversion. And I think, I, the, you know, the, the, the hangover from, from 80s and early 90s Christianity was this, tremendous emphasis on on the salvation from hell the eternal you know this was your ticket out uh you know and uh, and as long as we as long as that becomes the motivation um mm. it's an easy reason to do evangelism but i don't think it's a it's a true one or an mm. authentic one no. i don't i don't i don't have that sense of uh, this is now my responsibility to to keep you out of hell i did read a quote in preparation for this where the person wrote said when we know why it matters to be christian we'll figure out how to help others enter the faith mm. Mm. yes and uh and, and I, I think that's the logical issue of evangelism yeah. why does it matter to be a christian i've told you andrew many times of um when i first arrived in australia and, and my neighbor said to me mm. um oh what do you do and I said, I'm a minister. And, and he genuinely asked me the question, um, oh, uh, you know, why, why should I come to church? And, and he was like genuinely saying, he wasn't mm -hmm. trying to be funny mm -hmm. or facetious mm -hmm. or anything like that. He was, 
quite interested and and uh, and honestly sort of stood there with a mouthful of teeth for a minute thinking uh Mm. yeah indeed (laughs) yeah so so the motivation like you know when we figure out why it matters to be Mm. christian Mm. then we'll figure out how to help others well i mean i mean can we respond to that question why does it matter to be a christian if you look at what carry on Stu. No, it, it, um, it was interesting when Duncan was talking, when using the illustration of, um, of the Muslim uh, friend, you know, there would be a section of the church who would say, you have failed in evangelism yeah. if you haven't uh, converted them. It matters that much to be Christian that their, their salvation depends on what you have done there now. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted you, Duncan, but that's what I was going to say. No, absolutely, I agree with you, and I think that's that's one of the problems. That some of the baggage that we've got from evangelism, where primarily the American models have touted this this thing of conversion, get them to say the sinner's prayer, and then move on to the next one. You know, and if you can get twenty thousand people to do it at a time, you're God's special child. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the theological issues I, I think that there is with evangelism lies very specifically in the the meaning of evangelism, which is good news. And I think, to pick up on what Stu was saying, too often people sell evangelism as a veiled threat. You know, you've got to say these words, otherwise you're going to burn forever. Mm. You've Mm. got to say these words, Mm. otherwise your children are going to be damned. You've got to Mm. say these words, otherwise... No, no, it shouldn't, it never has been a veiled threat. It's always been a welcome, a, an invitation to enjoy, to find joy, to find peace, mm. to have mm. hope, mm. to live a fuller, deeper life. That, mm. that for me, is, is the end result of evangelism, is not mm. a notch on your cross, mm. but somebody finding a depth and a breadth to their life that they mm. didn't have before. Mm. Somebody finding healing from past hurt. That's mm. the, the fruit of evangelism. Mm. Whether mm. they've made a a formal commitment to to christ or not really to me becomes less of an issue because that's Mm. god's problem not mine Mm. god Mm. will work with them and work in them and and they'll express it however but Mm. just Mm. bringing bringing them to the place where they see Mm. that there is this good news this hope this joy this peace whatever Mm. it might be that for me is is the best result we can have from evangelism Mm. Uh, uh, the um, sorry, Andrew. The oh. um, the the whole idea of a personalized faith is actually, relatively speaking, quite new. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, I've I've forgotten the dates. I don't have them on on hand. But but there's a specific time that can be pinpointed in church history where the idea of this individualized faith became a political means of control. You don't actually see it in Scripture. And if you think of how how the church pushes what Duncan's saying, these specific words you've got to say and so on, you, you would have imagined that at some point in his ministry, Jesus would have said, listen, guys, you know, it doesn't matter what you do when you're walking on this earth spreading the gospel. Just get people to say these words. Mm. You know, this is this is the deal. Everything, all eternity hangs on this moment. Um, but you don't see that in Jesus. You don't mm-hmm. see it in the first 
few hundred years of church history. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, look, I'm not saying it it has no place or anything like that, obviously. Mm. Um, that society has moved to a more individualistic uh, yeah. place. So the, co- the context has certainly changed. But I think initially uh, that emphasis wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been talking about uh, different forms of evangelism through the years. The church continues to die. Uh, I think we we can agree that these forms of evangelism, none of them has been sort of overwhelmingly successful. They might have all had a season of, of uh, sort of uh, flaring up and sort of flaming out. Um <clears throat> I mean, what 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 is the future then? Um, it strikes me in a, maybe an overly simplistic way that it seems that one of the 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 powerful hands that the church historically has played is actually a hand of fear and guilt. That um, we've had the notion of hell and belief as being a very powerful incentive for people to to follow through with some form of faith commitment. Uh, that I think, in terms of a modern and, and postmodern mindset, has largely sort of fallen away. Uh, and it strikes me then that the onus must fall on a living community that is absolutely reflective of the good news that we are attempting to sort of convey into the world. And that may be one of the problems for the church is the fact that. Uh, it isn't being particularly effective in conveying that, that that these communities aren't necessarily reflecting. Is that too harsh a critique of of the modern day church, or or is it oversimplistic to to sort of pare it down that far? I don't think that's um, too harsh a critique. I think our congregations have, by and large, become um, disengaged from their wider communities um and i think it's got something to do with people living longer you know um being fitter for longer all this sort of thing um and and there's the schism between society the world as it is Mm. and what happens in our churches is just bigger and bigger and bigger with each year Mm. and i Mm. think we've we've simply got to the point where people in our churches have nothing in common or very, very little in common with the reality of the world outside the doors of the church. And I think one of the things, and one of the reasons I stay in the Methodist church is because it has a very strong social justice arm. Mm. It, it, it finds its expression in social justice. That, that's where, apart from scriptural holiness, of course, is social justice is, is what drives and defines a lot of what the church does. And I think that's the point of contact that we have with society now is issues of social justice, things that make a very real practical difference to people in the world around us. And that's, for me, where we could find our strength. But again, the people we have primarily in the church are disengaged with that sort of thing. Mm. Or it's a case of they've been there and done that and they're tired. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think Stuart echoed that in a previous podcast as well. Stu, would you add anything to that? Would you agree? Uh, yeah, look, I do, I do agree. I think I think there's um, some complicated things, you know, context-wise that come into the mix as well. Um, because you do have 
uh, of faithful people who have tried faithfully to raise children um, and and context-wise there's just been a number of things that have fallen off the way that, that I'll give you a quick example it doesn't so, so at some point in the Uniting Church here in Australia, they, they used to have lots of different campsites where, where they would hold youth camps when young people would get together. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, young people met life partners on those camps, mm-hmm. and that would generate Christian families. Mm-hmm. At some point financially or whoever, whatever reason, they sold off all of these campsites. Youth camps became a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. Less Christian families, you know, one partner trying to hold together a life of faith, another one not interested ends up, mm-hmm. you know. So so th- there's complicated factors that that have driven us to the point of, of – um, of where we are with uh, with the church relating to the world, so so in some senses, I feel I feel sorry for people who have faithfully done what the church has told them to do mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all their life, but it hasn't yielded the results, mm-hmm. and um, and I don't think the church kept its eye on the ball, if I can put it to you that way, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and in some ways, we're now reaping the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with you completely with that, Stuart. I think there are people who have done their utmost and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren mm-hmm. have no interest in the church. And the, the, the fault does not lie with those individuals because they have yeah. been good and godly people. The fault mm-hmm. lies with the church that had no relevance to a changing world and didn't bother trying to be relevant. And you know, really, we can we can bang the drum as much as we like, but until we become actually practically relevant to what's going on in the world around us, I don't think we've got any chance of succeeding in evangelism. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think you know. So, sorry, Andrew. You know, Duncan, you say um, the church didn't try and bother to be relevant. I think in 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 the minds of of yesteryear's church, the uh, the the prevailing thought was probably that the world must conform to the church's understanding Um, that the world's sense of relevance is anti what, uh, do you know what I mean? So, so they thought they were being faithful in, 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 uh, in calling the church to conform to them. And and the world was actually just, cheers, we're, we're going, we're, we're moving on, you know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that idea of of relevance then becomes uh, obviously very important. I mean, what does a relevant church look like? Is this in terms? Are you talking, Duncan, in terms of uh, in teaching and preaching, addressing the issues of our time? Are you talking about uh, sort of programs that actually meet the needs of people? Like, what does it mean to raise faithful families in in this particular uh, point in history? What what does a a relevant church look like? Because I think all of us have probably dipped into the temptation of preaching messages that are sort of quaint and pretty and uh, you know and a little airy, but not really they're not prophetic in the way of of actually addressing what 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 the what the particular challenges are for our people. Uh, what does a relevant church look like? 
Or maybe it's just me preaching those messages from time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I have heard a few of your sermons <laughs> and, <laughs> and areas far yeah. too solid an expression to you. Um, no, Andrew, I, I think, you know, you hit it on the head that, that th there's a pain in being prophetic mm. because mm. right throughout time, acknowledged by everyone along the way, including Jesus, was that prophets are not accepted. Mm. So you can be prophetic and challenging and, you know, try and wake people up and move them on and move them out and get them to look and everything else. But if they don't want to, they won't. And and yeah. I think that the the fault has lain with the national church. It has become a, a stagnant body. Mm. And you can't, I, I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of your fathers as ministers, it's not fair to generalize and say, well, you know, it was the previous generation or the generation before that of ministers. And I'd certainly never, never dared to say that or have said it to your father, well, in a joke maybe, but not seriously. <laughs> you know, and, and I think there have always been people who have said, this is what we need to do. This is who mm. we need to be. This is how church needs to be real. Mm. But th they, they have always been the exception. And I yeah. think that's true now. Yeah. There are too many people who are just replicating what they did last week and the year before and the decade before and three decades before that mm. and not actually saying, well, hang on, you know, the, the scenery's changed. Let's, mm. let's change what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Stuart? Yeah, look, I think even in your, in your charismatic and independent churches, there's a, <clears throat> sorry, there's a falling back on, 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 on what's going to work, the emotionalism, the, you know, um, and as, as much as they may say they're growing or whatever, statistically it's not, it's not happening. You know, there might be pockets of growth. Um, I, I think the, the, the sense of um, where the church needs to go, Duncan actually spoke on it a little earlier on in the, in the, in the podcast where you spoke about those authentic uh, relationships. Well, it's two things. It's meeting needs and being an authentic relationship. The relationship actually almost earns you the right to meet the needs. Um, uh, you know, so, so I think, um, I think of a friend who uh, we were, we were friends probably for four or five years of just, he wasn't a church goer um, at all, but, you know, the family would come around for barbecues or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, but it was one day when 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 something happened and uh, and there was this relationship that was there and he was able to phone and say, I need to speak to you, you know. Mm -hmm. Um there's there's something here that's there's a problem. And uh, and that um that was an authentic person yeah. who uh, an authentic relationship that led mm -hmm. to a person coming to to an understanding of what it means mm -hmm. to be in a relationship with god yeah yeah but um it's uh, uh it has to be around those relationships and, and meeting the needs and duncan's right you know the social justice stuff the um in australia here yeah, we're actually looking at a program of saying um one of the needs in our community is in Australia, you've got to do a hundred hours of learner driving before you can get your license. Mm. But there are kids whose parents couldn't give a, mm. a continental to bother with the time. Mm. And mm. in our church, we've got, what have we got? 
we got tons of people who retired with bags mm. of time on their hands mm. and driver's licenses. Mm. Mm. So buy a car and kit it out and help kids get driver's licenses and, mm. you know, and that creates relationships mm. and, mm. and connections mm. and meets mm. a need. Mm. And that I think is the way we've got to, we, the church will be relevant. Mm. Mm. Good. So, um, I mean, we're drawing to an end. Uh, and anything you'd like to add in terms of our word for uh, our word evangelism for this week? It still fills me with trepidation. You know, it's still such a big beast to take on yeah. that I'm still left thinking, I'm sure that there are easier and better ways of doing it than buying a program. But yeah. my word, trying to trying to both... Get get the courage together to actually do it, and mm. and then to mm. get other people to share in it is quite a challenge. Stu, mm. mm. yeah, I think uh, something I'm actually made a note of to mention right at the beginning, but uh, but forgot was to say that um, <clears throat> I think there's a uh, for the sense of evangelism, God is already doing it. You know, the Holy Spirit is, I honestly believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in everybody's life. And I I don't feel the need to <clears throat> to win somebody to heaven because I, I can't convert anybody. God God's Spirit is at work mm. in their lives, drawing them to himself. And in some senses, I'm going to say, you know, evangelism is... is um, it's funny how you can join the spirit in that work. Mm. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Beautiful. Guys, I actually thought I'd, I'd close with a, um, a quote. I'm reading a book called Pastor Paul by Scott McKnight. And, um, and uh, I remember reading this as a couple of days or a week ago. Uh, I quite enjoyed it because this is Barbara Brown Taylor. I think we are probably familiar with Barbara Brown Taylor as an Episcopal preach, uh, priest in the States, or she was. Mm. And um, uh, she sort of speaks about her own conversion experience when she speaks of when some college classmates hit her up for some quick fix evangelism, which is how Scott McKnight puts it. Uh, and then he says, the one most surprised is Taylor and perhaps her fans like me today. I just want to read the paragraph as uh, Barbara Brown Taylor writes it. She says this, the whole thing, <laughs> the whole thing <laughs> took less than 20 minutes. It was quick, simple, <laughs> direct. They did not have any questions about who Jesus was. You are here. God is there. Jesus is the bridge. Say these words and you are a Christian. Abracadabra. Amen. It is still hard for me to describe my frame of mind at the time. I was half serious, half amused. I cooperated as much out of curiosity as anything. And because I thought that going along with them would get them out of my room faster than arguing with them, most of it was just embarrassing, the kind of simplistic faith I liked the least. But something happened to me that afternoon. After they left, I went out for a walk, and the world looked funny to me, different. People's faces looked different to me. I'd never noticed so many details before. I stared at them like portraits in a gallery and my own face burned for over an hour. Meanwhile, it was hard to walk. The ground was spongy under my feet. I felt weightless, and it was all I could do to keep myself from floating up and getting stuck in the trees. 
and that's her story. I quite found that quite beautiful and mm. moving. It reminded me a little bit of what Duncan was saying there. You know, the uh, the endeavor might be um, imperfect, like EE three, but the results, should, like you're saying as well, are in God's hands ultimately. Yeah. Um, yeah. To everybody listening in, thank you so much. Uh, we keep these conversations raw and honest. We not so not here so much to provide answers as just to allow you in on the conversations we're all having all the time, especially as leaders in churches. Thank you so much for being with us for this edition of Pontificators Anonymous. And uh, Duncan, thank you for being here. Stuart, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks, Andrew. Andrew. Thanks, Duncan. And thanks to everyone else who listened. And if you've come back for this podcast, well done. You're a glutton for punishment. (laughs)